Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of economics and electrical and systems engineering at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as a leading global expert in mechanism design, an innovative area of game theory that brings together economics, engineering, and computer science. Holding a PhD in mathematics from the University of Maryland, his work has been critical to the development of game, auction, and pricing theory. It's my great honor to welcome to the show, Dr. Rakesh Vora. Thank you so much for joining us. A very kind introduction. Thank you. So, as I'm sure a lot of our audience is wondering, I wanted to start off by asking you about the connections between electrical engineering and economics, two fields that don't seem to be re related whatsoever at first glance. So, could you please tell us a bit more about the possible real-world applications of connecting these two disciplines? Okay. So, there are... Um, two, I guess, fairly obvious connections. One is through the design of auctions to sell wireless spectrum, which allows for wireless communication. You know, this is the way we're currently communicating. And having an understanding of the technology for accessing spectrum and, um, and the properties of spectrum is important for understanding how to design auctions for the sale of spectrum. The second application is in electricity markets, which in many countries were largely deregulated in the 19, late 1980s. And designing the markets to price and distribute power, in particular electricity, requires some basic understanding of how electricity operates and travels through wires, for example. Those are the two obvious applications. There are less obvious applications uh, which have to do with the, with the control of what I call distributed systems. For example, a platoon of drones. Um, drones uh, cannot have very much computation power so that limits their ability to coordinate uh, with other drones. So to some extent, these drones are independent agents, and you want them to somehow coordinate their behavior without explicitly communicating with each other because that can be costly. And so game theoretic tools are used to understand how to design such kinds of systems and uh, understand their properties. And interestingly enough, game theory also comes up in the design of robots. In particular, how would you design robots to interact safely with human beings? Right, and actually that's a perfect segue into what I wanted to talk to you about next, which is game theory a bit more broadly. So I'm sure many of our listeners who took at least an introductory microeconomics course in high school or college are familiar with the prisoner's dilemma and the Nash equilibrium in which no individual receives any benefit from changing their initial actions, assuming the actions of the other players are held constant. So Dr. Vora, can you please tell us a bit more about what game theory is and some of its applications? Well, I must compliment you on getting the definition of Nash equilibrium correct. Uh, many people don't. In fact, if you ever saw the movie A Beautiful Mind, you will know that they got the definition wrong in that movie, which is rather surprising. Um, okay, so you asked about you asked about the applications of game theory. 
Yeah, so, um, exactly. Yeah, so most of the major applications are really in economics, and that's because uh, of an understanding that that human behavior in in high stakes situations is strategic. People are strategic when the stakes are high, and therefore, if you're going to understand uh, how they will behave in a given in a given environment, you have to have some model of how we think about each other. And that's essentially what game theory is about. It's a recognition that, you know, my payoffs don't depend on my own choices alone. They depend on the choices of other people. And what other people will do will depend on their beliefs about what I'm going to do. And what I'm going to do depends on what I believe they're going to do. And so sorting out what could ostensibly be um, a thorny problem is, so, is, is sort of the essence of game theory. So the applications are for understanding how firms compete with each other, uh, uh, you know, uh, understanding how different kinds of compensation will influence workers and the effort that they put in. And um, it's understanding, for example, the incentives for students or teachers to put in effort to improve educational outcomes. So there are a wide range of applications, all of which involve humans in strategic situations. Right. And it's it's clear, um, especially looking at, um, for example, oligopolistic markets with, um, for example, um, say the telecommunications industry or um, the, the soft drink industry, where there's there's just a few players. And so obviously um, the decisions of, of every every firm will will ultimately impact the others as well. Um, but then how, how is game theory used more broadly, um, for example, in a in a market with hundreds of um, competing firms um, and, and varying levels of information and um you know um yeah so how 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 does okay. how do Very we expand well so here so in a world where no one individual is particularly pivotal or influential game theory has very little to say that's not in other words that's not the setting that game theory is designed for it's designed precisely for the settings that you just mentioned where a subset of the individuals are pivotal. Their actions have an outsized impact. Right, I, and, I see. And and so you know, and and so typically, oligopoly would be would be the would be the rel, would be the relevant application. Right. So next, I wanted to ask you about a central question of your research, which, as described on the UPenn website, states. Quote, the best ways to allocate scarce resources when the information required to make the allocation is dispersed and privately held. So firstly, could you please tell us a bit more about what is meant by the allocation of scarce resources as in who specifically is allocating them? What type of information um, needed to make such allocations is typically not publicly available? And what are some um, real world examples of this problem? Okay, so I'll answer your question, I guess, with a particular example that that should kill two birds with one stone. Uh, the U.S. military 
is supported by a giant logistical organization to ensure that U.S. forces are supplied with blood, bullets, and beans. Okay. Now, a fundamental problem that they have to, have to figure out is how much of these particular resources do they have to send to a particular fort or base in different parts of the world? Okay. Now, what's the issue? Uh, the issue is, if you go down to the level of what's called the tactical edge, the commander in a particular base, for example, one of the things that they have to make sure of is that they have sufficient supply to meet the challenges that are anticipated in the location that they are serving in. In particular, if there is a failure of mission, the U.S. military recognizes that that cannot solely be the responsible of the, of the commander. It also depends on what the opposition, for example, is doing. Okay. However, if it is discovered that the commander was not prepared, for example, did not have sufficient supplies, this is something that they were responsible for. And you could hold them accountable for that. So what you have to imagine now is a setup where all of these individual units are very concerned with making sure that they have sufficient supplies to, ensure, to, to guarantee their readiness. Okay? The precise way in which we define readiness doesn't matter. Okay? So now think about the incentives of an individual officer in this situation. If their supplies fall below some critical level, they have, of course, an incentive and a responsibility to tell Central HQ, our supplies are below a certain critical level. We would like to be replenished as soon as possible. Now, the U.S. military does not use prices to decide which bases or operating units will be supplied first. They determine the relevant priorities and then supply according to that. That, that means every commander or operating unit will then claim our needs are number one priority. <laughs> now, the result, not everything can be served immediately because there's a limited supply of planes, trucks, and so you get put into a queue. Okay? So now you see the opportunities to jockey. I know that there's going to be a delay in my shipment, so I'm going to scream loud and hard that my shipments are uh, absolutely urgent vital for the defense of Western civilization. Okay. These requests go up to central command. They, have, they now have thousands of requests, all of which have the highest possible priority. How on earth do they decide which of these they're going to replenish first? Okay. And now the other problem is that the U.S., the center does not have visibility into the actual supply at any one base. Only the commander of the relevant base knows their current inventory situation. If you ask them, 
They're not about to tell you, oh, we've got more than enough. Because if you tell them you've got more than enough, they will delay further shipments to you. Does that example make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but then in that case, um, I mean, couldn't couldn't the central HQ just um, you know check exactly what 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 the level of those resources are and how much they should be needing? Um, should that information not already be available? Okay, so um, so it turns out that uh, currently the U.S. military tracks what is shipped out but monitoring what is actually available in a particular location is difficult. And the reason it's difficult is uh, some of these warehouses are enormous and things get lost. Okay. And the other, the other problem is, okay, I can send someone out to check today Right. But that doesn't tell me what the levels will be, you know, three or four days from now, because these resources are being depleted. You know, if you think about food, for example. So it's it, it's very hard to maintain in real time uh, knowledge, of, you know, exact knowledge about the level of supply of various important resources around the world. Um, in, in that case, um, shouldn't a system like, for example, something that supermarkets use, um, wouldn't wouldn't that be highly effective then? Um, so every time something is checked out from the quote unquote supermarket or the warehouse, um, it, it's tracked. And so if you know the level, uh, the, the initial inventory, and then you can track exactly what's taken out, um, you should know exactly what is remaining. Okay, so um, so. So this goes to why not stick barcodes on everything, RFID chips on everything. Uh, but there are some things you can't stick RFID chips on. Uh, the other thing that you also have to monitor is how long has it been in storage? For example, food. So it's not enough for me to know how many food packets are in a warehouse. I also need to know what the expiry date on these food packets is. Okay? Another problem is if you walk into a warehouse and you ask for something, it may take a long time to find it. I know this sounds hard to believe, but some of these warehouses are huge. And it's not unusual for people to say, you know what, let's just order a new one. So right. you have a great you have a great deal of redundancy in the you know, yeah, so so you get you, you get these essentially redundant orders in the system, right? And so that addresses uh, the first part of the problem, which is um, the the allocation, the information required to make the allocation is dispersed. Um, the second part, uh, when it's privately held. So this example, um, I think it talks about uh, a government agency, um, a, a way that the you know, the uh, part of the government, how this problem affects them. Is this, is this problem also, um, also, um, did, or, does it also apply to, um, for example, the, the private, privately owned firms? Yes. Um, right. So the, um, the, the example of the U S military that I gave you is simply an instance of any large organization where the information that is needed to make important decisions 
is held not at the center, but by people farther down the chain of command, if you like, right? And the, and this information is is valuable in the sense that the organization needs it to make resource uh, allocation de- decisions. But those resource allocation decisions could eventually affect my bonus, right? and therefore I don't. Therefore, I have an incentive. Um, I have an incentive to exploit that information for my own gain. Okay. And the obvious, you know, the obvious example of this is. Um, uh, let me think. What? Yeah. So, ba- I, I mean. The simplest version of this is I'm a manager. I wish to t- get money from the central organization to make an investment. Uh, if the project I invest in turns out to be successful, immediate promotion. If the project turns out to be a failure, I don't have to pay the money back, right? Because it's not that I'm taking out a loan. Okay? And I can always find reasons for why it was a failure that had nothing to do with me. So essentially, I'm living in a world where I get to I get to make gambles with other people's money. Right. Um, and so, um, as far as this problem is concerned, um, would you say that there needs to be some some kind of um, public? Public policy change, or is this something that um, every every private organization needs to figure out for themselves, so to speak? Well, so it is something that every private organization recognizes, and it enters into how you design compensation contracts, how you reward people. And one of the things that economists who use game theory do is they look at various compensation schemes that appear at first glance to be a little odd or strange. But if you think about the fact that you're compensating someone who is more informed about the environment than you are, that usually provides a rationale for the particular compensation structure. So in that sense, game theory helps us understand, look, because of because of this problem of private information, compensation, the way we reward people has to account for that. In fact, a former colleague of mine used to say, um, economists, unlike lawyers, believe you have to pay people to tell the truth. (laughs) So if you have important private information that would be useful to me, however, the way I use that information could affect your payoffs, then the only way I'm going to get that information from you is by compensating you for it in some way. So so in the case of large organizations, I have to recognize that some of my managers are going to skim a little off the top, but it's the cost of doing business. Right. And I think uh, game theory makes that obvious, right? Um, so if, if any any one person stands to get a, a bigger payoff from changing their actions, then it's the role of, um, you know, the central organization to try and anticipate that. Yes. Um, yeah. And so um, as, as I understand it, um, you've done some work in the past on auction design as well. So I wanted to uh, ask you about the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2020, which was awarded to Robert 
Robert Wilson and Paul Milgram for their development of the simultaneous multi-round auction, um, which is used in the sale of certain public goods, which, as I understand it, um, eliminates the potential for bitter collusion and corruption and both simultaneously fetches higher prices and reduces overpaying. So, Dr. Vora, um, for our audience whose only um, exposure to auctions might be on uh, eBay or Craigslist, um, I just wanted you to ask, um, explain to, to us a bit more about auction theory and, and why this research was so groundbreaking. Okay. Um, so, you are right. Most people's exposure to auctions is probably the kind of auction they see in a James Bond movie where there is a single asset for sale and the bidders are simply trying to outbid each other for that one asset. Okay? The work of Robert Wilson and Paul Milgram was motivated by the sale of complex assets. And an example of a complex asset would be the wireless spectrum. What makes for the complexity here is the following. Adjacent pieces of spectrum uh, raise the possibility of interference. So basically, if I transmit across along a particular wavelength, and you transmit along the same wavelength, then our communications will interfere with each other. Okay. Now, the way we control for that is uh, we try to segregate the bands of spectrum that we hand out to prevent interference. Okay. So one issue is the interference. The second issue is what's called complementarities, which is Bidders in this setting are not interested in getting one license. They're interested in getting a portfolio of licenses that will allow them to build out a national communication network. So the fact that they are after more than one object at the same time is what causes the complexity. To illustrate the complexity, think about the sale of a dining room set six chairs and a single table. Should you sell each of those things separately or should you sell them together as a package? Now it's worth thinking about the implications of each. If I sell them as a package, then the only potential bidders are those who are interested in a dining room set. I am shutting out people who might be happy to buy one or two chairs or someone who wishes to buy just the single table. A priori, it's not obvious that that's a good idea. Maybe there are many more people interested in buying individual chairs and an individual table than the number of people interested in buying a dining room set. Okay, so that's roughly the same situation with spectrum. Should I sell a a package that I've put together? That's like selling the entire dining room set. Or should I allow people to buy individual pieces of spectrum? This would be like selling the chairs separately from the table. I don't know because I don't know what people's preferences are. I don't know what the demands are. And in a sense, that is what an auction is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be collecting that information for me. So the challenge is, how can I design an auction uh, 
which will allow me to find out whether the demand is concentrated among people who want the entire dining room set, or is demand concentrated among people who want individual chairs and a single table? Does that make sense? Right. And so as I'm as I'm thinking about this sort of hypothetical scenario, um, what I realize is um, if you were to sell them individually, so then people that wanted to buy the entire set, you know, they might firstly bid on one chair. And if they win that, um, then, you know, they they now have to um, win every single other chair and as well as the table. Otherwise, just the one chair that they won initially, that that'll be a sunk cost. Right. So absolutely. And that's, what you that's why it's going to they, they, yeah. they're going to have to pay consistently higher and higher prices and overpay for all the others. Exactly right. This is and what you've identified is called the exposure problem, which is if you sell the assets individually, the people who want a bundle of these assets are then going to be concerned that they end up only with some, but not all, in which case it's it may not be worth what they paid for it. So if you sell them, if you sell them separately, you're going to discourage these bidders from participating. Right. And then that also opens up the, the potential that, you know, I know that you're trying to buy the entire set. I, why don't I just buy one chair, even though I, I may have to overpay for it. And then, you know, now you've got the other five chairs in, in the table. So I can charge you whatever I want and essentially hold you hostage for this, this one chair. Yes. yes. So, so a properly designed auction uh, is, you know, tries to, takes into account these possibilities. You're thinking very hard about how bidders can strategize and work the system to their benefit. So um, again, the spectrum example is, is, is a good instance. One of the things that may not seem immediately obvious is that the is that the language that you allow the bidders to use to make bids can be used to communicate with each other and so induce collusion. Right? So the classic example from Spectrum is um, you were bidding on licenses. Licenses had serial numbers and you could send messages to your rivals uh, by bidding on licenses that they were interested in and um, uh, sending a signal basically, look, I'm interested in A, I'm putting a bid in on A, and I'm putting in a, a bid on B, which you're interested in. This is to warn you that if you bid on A, I'm going to push the bidding on B up. I don't know if I explained that very well or not. Yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. Um, and so, as I as I understand it, um, the the simultaneous multi round auctions, um, they they auction all of these um, off at once in sort of a, a blind auction. And so, everyone submits their bids, and it happens in multiple rounds. So, at the end of every round, um, everybody can see what the highest bid on each of those um, each of those assets were. Um, or each oh. part of that asset, and then have the option to increase or withdraw their bids until there's only um, right. until there's a final bid on all of them. Yeah. So the simultaneous ascending auction was the first generation design for the sale of Spectrum that was proposed by Robert Wilson, and after the run through of that, that it was then that it was discovered that this particular design 
allowed bidders to actually communicate with each other. And there's some evidence to suggest that some bidders did that and so depressed the prices. This, uh, this feature, negative feature, among some other negative features, prompted a second design, and this is the package bid auction, which is credited to Paul Milgram, among others. And this was built on top of the simultaneous ascending auction to correct for some of the deficiencies of that auction. Okay. Now, one thing I think it's important to keep in mind is that even if there were flaws in the auction, uh, there is an argument to be made that simply having the auction was better than the alternative. So this is something I, I think sometimes people forget, which is no auction no auction can be perfect. The question we should be asking is, is it better than the alternative? And the simultaneous ascending auction at that time was, I, I would think, better than the alternative. And the alternative was what's known as a beauty contest, where essentially wireless, you know, potential putative wireless carriers would parade before civil servants and essentially say, we're a good company. Why don't you give us Spectrum? Right, and obviously, if it's a if it's a government or, or a, a public agency trying to trying to sell public goods, their their prior one of their priorities, um, as well as maximizing revenue um, for the taxpayers, is is also to ensure that that asset is put towards good use. Right. So that that. Uh, so, so I would phrase it a little differently, uh, which is. The priority of government should be making sure that the assets are in the hands of those people who will use it most efficiently. Right, it exactly. Is not, it is not the same as raising revenue. So, in other words, there is an argument to be made that if I can find out who's going to use the assets most efficiently, I should just give it to them for free. Okay. The reason governments care about revenue is because this is a way for us to tell whether the whether our representatives, in some sense, have done have done a good job. Right. So, so this is so. Here's an example of of uh, of private information again, which is if I give you full discretion to hand out the assets. I don't know if you gave the assets to the people who will use it most efficiently. On the other hand, if I ask you, show me how much money you made, then that's some evidence that you that you handed it out to people who would use it more efficiently than others. But it is not perfect evidence of that fact. And is there a, a trade-off with this sort of thing? So, for example, um, if I'm trying to sell an asset and there's two potential buyers, one of them I know is going to use it um, more efficiently than the other, but um, the person that's going to use it less efficiently is willing to pay significantly more than the person that's going to use it efficiently. So is there is there a right trade-off where you you sacrifice that efficiency for a, a higher um, a higher price? So the so it is so both theoretically and and in the example that you pointed out, there is um, you cannot simultaneously get efficiency and revenue maximization. Those two things just cannot exist. So yes, there can be situations where I could end up with a lot of money, 
but an inefficient allocation. So from the point of view of public policy, it's a balancing act. When you're designing these auctions, you're focused both on efficiency, because that's really the ultimate goal, but you also care about revenue, because if the revenue is low, then the representatives of the government will be criticized for the particular allocation decision they've made. In particular, the concern will be raised that they were favoring their friends and family. Right, and so the the, the corruption is is another another issue. But I think um, we've gotten too far into auction theory. So just finally to finish off, um, I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us a bit about your latest book, um, Prices and Quantities: The Fundamentals of Macroeconomics. Well, uh, thank you for the opportunity. So this is a book that I wrote out of my experiences from teaching intermediate microeconomics to undergraduates. And across the United States, this is sort of the entry-level course into the economics major. It is probably the first economics course where, uh, where students are exposed to formal mathematical arguments um, that justify you know, certain well-accepted economic principles. And when I was teaching it, I had this sense there was a lot of dissatisfaction, at least among the students, uh, with the nature of the course. And I sympathize with that dissatisfaction because the design pretty much, yeah, the design of the course is mimics pretty much the design from more than 60 years ago. Nothing much has changed. So this book grew out of a redesign of that course um, revamping in particular the order in which topics were presented, but also thinking more carefully about the examples that were used to illustrate you know, the main ideas. And so uh, this redesign has been adopted at Penn. It's been running now for four or five years. My sense, at least from student responses, is uh, they're very positively disposed to it. And um, so in that sense, I'm happy. Right. And just so for anyone who might be interested in, in purchasing this book, um, could you just give us a bit of an idea of the maybe the prerequisites, um, especially mathematically, um, you know, as someone who's just taken, say, two semesters of, of single variate calculus, can they read and understand this? Or do you need a much higher level um, no. understanding? So, um, so a basic knowledge of calculus uh, suffices. Um, it is useful to know something about optimization involving two variables but there's an appendix in the book that gives you a little cookbook version of that. So really, yeah, anyone I think with a basic understanding of calculus should be able to understand what's going on. Even someone without calculus, I believe, will get something out of the book because I spent a lot of time motivating and providing intuition for what's going on. So uh, even if one doesn't have a calculus background, I think you sh you would still get something out of it. I guess something I would stress, which I should have stressed earlier, which is one of the things I strive for in the book was try was to explain why the mathematics was needed. And I do that 
by providing examples where intuition and words alone will not lead to the, you know, will not lead to a conclusion. Right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. So thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Bora. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.